Lord, as we turn to the words that you've given us in the book of Luke, we pray that we would be submissive to them, that we would hear them as authoritative and life-giving, life-changing words that were inspired by your Spirit. Father, may we leave here with, with greater affection for Christ. May we marvel at his compassion and his authority and his word. And Lord, may we be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Luke 7, 11 through 17 this morning. Thank you, Paul, for reading that for us earlier. I attended a funeral once where the family of the deceased made a request from the pastor to have some time during the service, and surely you've seen this at some point, where, where people in the congregation can share stories or, or things about the person who has passed. And This person was just kind of loosely associated with the church, so it was with fear and trembling that the pastor agreed to allow this time of sharing in the funeral. And so the time came in the service for this to happen, and, and the pastor says, okay, so... Does anybody have some thoughts they would like to share? And one of the granddaughters shot her hand up, and when she was called on, she, she, she stood up, and she said, I'd just like to point out how strong Grandma was. And then she turned to the crowd and said, Imagine how you would respond if your daughters deserted you, and if you had a son that was strung out on meth, and she used it as an opportunity just to call everyone out, in the family. I just can't imagine how strong grandma had to be to put up with all of you. And after um, throwing her whole family under the bus, sat down and the funeral resumed. And so all funerals are at some level a reminder of the effects and consequences of sin. This one felt like a greater reminder of the effects and consequences of sin. In our passage this morning, Jesus attends a funeral, and unlike most funerals, this one turns in the middle of it into joyous celebration. Last week, the miracle that Jesus performed, if you were here with us, we were in the beginning of Luke chapter 7, the centurion's servant was healed. Last week, the miracle was almost functioning in the background. The miracle itself was secondary. The emphasis fell on the nature of faith and how a Gentile centurion was exercising faith in Christ, faith to an extent that was rarely seen in Israel. And, and then therefore, the, the miracle, even the authority of Christ was sort of orchestrating in the background as the emphasis fell on the nature of faith and in verses 11 through 17, what we're going to look at today, it's, it's the opposite. Faith is not mentioned in this passage. Faith is maybe implied in, in the background. But what was once in the background, the authority of Jesus, now hits us full force as it moves to the foreground. Jesus' word is authoritative, and he demonstrates that authority in his dominion over life and death. Jesus' word is authoritative, and he demonstrates it in his dominion over life and death. So as our passage opens, death has claimed its latest victim, and though death never, never seems to come at a convenient time, this one was 
particularly painful for a widowed mother who had just lost her only son. Look, in, look there in verses 11 and 12. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to pull out that pew Bible in front of you. I think it will help you uh, to follow along. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So the scene opens in the small town called Nain. This town was 20 miles from where we just saw Jesus in, in the beginning of chapter 7 in Capernaum. This town is 20 miles southwest. It's actually near Nazareth. It's within six miles of Jesus' Jesus's hometown of Nazareth. And this crowd that has been with them, many of them from the time he was healing and casting out demons and preaching in Luke chapter 6, this crowd has come with them. And as Jesus in this crowd near the city gate, he comes upon a funeral procession in progress. Now at the time, at the time in history, at the time in Israel, a funeral would, would if at all possible, would happen the same day after they made certain that this person is deceased, if there was any way they could get this person transported out, anointed and buried that day, they would do it. So they make certain the person is dead. They anoint his body with oil and spices wrapped in cloth and put him on a stretcher called a beer. And they take him outside the city gate and they would bury him uh, oftentimes in what might be like a family plot of land. And so this is what's happening. They're carrying this body out as Jesus approaches the city. And though all funerals uh, have a sense of mourning and sadness. This one is particularly heartbreaking as a mom is mourning the loss of her son. What a tragedy. Moms are not meant to bury their children. Parents aren't meant to bury their children. This isn't the normal order of things. When this happens, it seems to be some of the deepest darkest sorrow that a person could walk through. I haven't personally walked through this. I have some close friends who have. And decades later, you don't lose that, that sting of losing a child. And to add to the, to the mourning here, this is her only son. Jeremiah 6.26 speaks of, of the intense mourning that, that's associated with losing an only son. When he writes, mourn as for an only son. This is our only son. In, in a culture that valued heritage and passing on the family name, this was a, a huge deal to lose your only son. You see, the Jewish culture, I mean, they were Ancestry.com before Ancestry.com. They didn't need Google. They didn't need the Internet. They could track their ancestry back. They could track their family line. And I think... From the text, we can safely assume that this is a, a young man that was likely unmarried and therefore didn't have any children to continue on this family line. So this death is made even more tragic and that it signaled the end of this line. Not only that, but this poor lady cannot fall into the comforting arms of her husband as he's died as well. 
She's a widow who has just lost her only son. And in ancient Israel, this puts you in a terrible predicament. This puts you at the mercy of those around you. A widow was particularly vulnerable in this society. That's why God in his law made protections for widows as well as orphans and, and immigrants or, or strangers, they're called. And also, some of the harshest rebukes for Israel is when they were taking advantage of widows, when they were taking advantage of orphans, when they were taking advantage of the alien. They weren't caring for the weak. They were taking advantage of the weak. And so this was a scary place to be in life because a widow's particularly uh, vulnerable, and Israel doesn't have a great track record of caring for the widow. I'm sure in her mind that her own security was maybe last on the list of her concerns at this moment after losing her son, but it certainly is a real and a serious concern for her. And so here she is at this funeral of her only son. A crowd from the city has gathered around to mourn with this widow. And the cries of lament, you can imagine, growing louder and louder as Jesus approaches. We should pause for a moment and be reminded of the incredible loss that's associated with death, but also we should be reminded that death is so unnatural. It is so unnatural. That's why there's this mourning and this wailing and this weeping. And I can imagine somebody pushing back on this thought and saying, what could be more natural than dying? What could be more natural than something that affects 100% of the population? But what makes something unnatural is not if we all go through it, whether it happens to every person or not, to decide if something is unnatural, we need to ask, was it part of the original creation? Was it part of Genesis 1 and 2? Or was death introduced after the fact? And so if that is the basis by which we decide if something is natural or unnatural, we see that nothing is less natural than death. Death is the result of Genesis 3. Death is the result of rebellion against God. When God gave Adam and Eve the one prohibition, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. In the Hebrew, it's die is repeated. You will die, die. You will definitely die. And one of Satan's tricks when he came to tempt Eve was that you won't die. Surely you won't die. And it is, it is indeed in this act of treason against God that we call the fall of man that death invaded this world as one of the consequences of sin. So this funeral procession for the only son of a widow reminds us then of the painful effects of sin. Now, it's important to be careful here. The point I'm making is not that death exists, well, let me say this positively, then negatively. The point I'm making is that death exists because sin exists. Death exists because sin exists. I'm not trying to say this man's death was a direct result of his personal sin or the widow's a widow as a direct result of her personal sin. We don't know that. We do know that sin has entered this world and it has been wreaking havoc, causing destruction and sorrow and death from the moment it infiltrated this earth. 
And so as we reflect on a funeral, as we reflect on the effects of sin, my hope is that one attitude that it produces in our hearts is a deep hatred for sin. A deep hatred for sin. We ask, what brought death into the world? Sin. What condemns people to hell? Their sin. What destroys marriages and families? Sin. What creates division and disunity in a church? Sin. What's at the heart of, of rage and anger? Sin. What's at the heart of assault and violence and neglect and terrorism and jealousy and all, everything we can imagine? A screaming match between a husband and a wife, it's sin. What made the cross of Christ necessary is sin. So how quickly, how quickly we forget the cost of sin, the destructiveness of transgression, the consequences of rebellion. I think considering then the, the, the wickedness, the pervasity, the destructiveness of sin helps us to see Christ more clearly. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin's, um, the English Puritan Thomas Watson said, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And certainly this funeral in Luke 7 reminds us of the bitterness of sin. And as we move through this text, the rest of the narrative then helps us see the sweetness of Christ. Helps us see the sweetness of Christ. You know, if we believed in coincidence or luck, we might say that Jesus just kind of stumbled upon this scene. I'm sure according to the crowd that was following Jesus, that's what it appeared like, a, a coincidence. Wow, look at this, a funeral. But we know that Jesus doesn't act in, random matter, in a random manner. We know that Jesus doesn't act on accident. So we trust in, in the sovereignty and the purpose of Jesus, knowing that he came on a mission. So we might say that Jesus, on purpose, of his own volition, in his right timing, is walking up on this funeral with a purpose in mind to display his compassion and to display his authority. That's what point number two is. Jesus, driven by compassion, has come to remove the sting of death. Look in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. This widow could not be any different than the centurion we looked at last week. She could not be any different than the centurion. She had no Jewish elders advocating on her behalf. She doesn't have friends that she sent out to go advocate and deliver a message specifically to Jesus. She doesn't demonstrate tremendous faith the way the centurion did. The centurion had a servant that was dying. She has a son that is dead. So the emphasis here falls on the initiative that Jesus takes in showing his compassion. There's no advocate. There's no great faith. There's just a widow that's weeping in name. There's one thing this, Lord has, or this lady has in her favor. 
Psalm 68.5 says, God is a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. And God incarnate, Jesus Christ, has just walked up on the scene and encountered a widow in distress. And Jesus takes initiative because he's a compassionate Savior. He had compassion on her, the text says. This is an emotional term. It's a feeling of sympathy that wells up from within Jesus and moves him to act. In fact, Jesus is often described in the Gospels as one who has compassion. Sometimes it's for crowds of lost people. As he, as he looks at a crowd, he has compassion for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes it's compassion for the physically afflicted whom he touches and heals. Sometimes it's compassion because the crowd has been with him all day and they're hungry and he's going to feed them. Jesus has compassion and he acts on their behalf. And this is who Jesus is. And it is who Jesus forever will be. You see, sometimes I think that it's tempting to read the Gospels and forget that Jesus is just as compassionate today as he sits at the right hand of the Father. He didn't stop being compassionate when he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Another Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, wrote an entire book on the compassion of Jesus presently as he's been ascended to the right hand of the Father. And in those days, when he was writing, book titles were incredibly long. In fact, you don't even need to read the book after you've read the title. He titled his book this, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, or, this is where you get the long subtitle, A Treatise Demonstrating the Gracious Disposition and Tender Affection of Christ in His Human Nature, Now in Glory, unto his members under all sorts of infirmities, either sin or misery. You don't have to read the book. You know what it's about. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, compassionate towards sinners and sufferers. He moves towards his people, not away from them. He, he's a compassionate Savior, and it compels him to act. And so in his compassion, Jesus approaches the widow and speaks with her. And he offers her comfort, comforting words that only he could get away with. He says, do not weep. Now, I don't recommend you say that to a grieving mother at a funeral. Don't be the guy or the girl who places a greater burden on a grieving person. But Jesus can say this. And they are true words of comfort because he alone can change her circumstances. He alone can act. The beauty in this passage of Jesus Christ is that he perfectly pairs in himself compassion and power, compassion and authority. And so after telling this grieving woman, stop crying, and she might be thinking for a moment, what do you, what do you mean, stop crying? I just lost my only son. I'm a widow. I'm vulnerable here. Jesus approaches this plank or this stretcher where they have this body being transported to the grave. He touches it, which would have made him unclean according to the Old Testament law. But what Jesus does next is astounding. He speaks to a dead man. Not only does he speak to a dead man, he commands the dead man to do something. 
Now again, if you did this, it would be extremely offensive and somewhat comical if you told a dead person to get up out of the, out of the coffin. But Jesus is different than you or me. He's different. He looks at the young man who is minutes from being put in the grave, and he says, young man, I say to you, arise. Get up. Jesus, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, confronts death, and with the authority of his voice, with the power of his voice, he tells death to leave, and death retreats. Death gives up its hold on this man and it flees in submission to Christ because Christ has all authority. Verse 15 then tells us how the dead man responded. And it's amazing. The dead man sat up and began to speak. I'm curious about what he said. That was close. (laughs) Or I'm glad that's over. We don't, know, we don't know what he said, but that's, that's really not the point. The point is that a dead man sat up and began speaking. Jesus then hands or delivers this young man to his mother. What a turn of events. What a turn of events for this widow. Her, her tears are turned to joy in a moment. What she thought was a weird sort of comfort from Jesus to stop weeping has now become the easiest command in her life to obey. How could I go on weeping? My son has been resurrected from the dead. Her tears are dried up and there is, there is joy in her reunion with her son. And it's made possible because Jesus had both the compassion to act and the power to conquer death. He proves it over and over. He proves it in the gospel accounts and his ministry on earth where he raised not just this one, but others to, uh, from death to life. He proves it there. He proves it even at the end of his life when it seems like death has finally caught up with Jesus himself. The disciples were left wondering if death had mustered the courage to actually come back and confront Jesus. And, and this time death prevailed over Christ, yet death had set its own trap. It had laid its own snare. Jesus rose from the grave, demonstrating his victory over sin and death. He demonstrates his authority over death when he calls sinners like you and I to himself. If you are in Christ, And he showed his power when he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, You see, sin not only brought physical death into this world, it not only invaded us physically, there's there's a worse death, there's a separation from God, an alienation from him that the Bible calls spiritual death where we were separate, we were darkened in our understanding, our hearts were futile, we, we were enemies of God, we hated his will. And yet Christ has the power by the Spirit of God to overcome that. He says, Rusty, wake up. Will, wake up. And you rose from the dead spiritually. And your heart began to beat. And you were united with God through faith in Christ. You see, what Jesus has accomplished for us in his death and his 
resurrection has removed the, the sting of death. As we are promised, even a future resurrection. Another point where Jesus demonstrates his authority over death. That though these bodies are wasting away, we look forward to a resurrection. Jesus is the first fruit of those who are resurrected. John 5.28 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You know, a while back, Dan was going to preach on, on death, and we were going round and round about death. He thought I was being too pessimistic about death, and I thought he was being too optimistic about death. But as we, we talked further, here's, here's what we realized, that I was thinking about the process of death. Dying is, is not something to be excited about. I was thinking about the process of death, and the process is an awful reminder of the invasiveness and, again, the destruction of sin. And Dan was thinking about the result of death. For those who are in Christ, we are ushered into the presence of Christ. And we await a glorified body in which we will forever worship the Lord. See, though we all have to die, we can trust Die physically. We can trust that Jesus has the final victory. He has defeated the last enemy. And we can boast the way Paul boasted in 1 Corinthians 15 death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through, through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has come into the world to remove the final victory, the final sting of death. So Jesus here, because of his great authority, paired with his perfect compassion, overcomes death. He, he delivers this young man back to his mother. And the crowd following Jesus and all the funeral attendees are in absolute shock, and they become afraid. Point number three, we should fear God and obey His voice. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people. And this report about Him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So after witnessing the power and authority of Jesus on display, the crowd is seized with fear. Many in the crowd surely don't truly understand who Jesus is, but they recognize what just happened isn't some trick. They recognize that what just happened is an act of God. So they're struck by fear. And the text says they begin glorifying God. They begin praising God. This fear, it, it leads them to praise. And this is important, I think, for us to consider for a moment. We made a similar point when we were in Malachi uh, last year, but I think it bears repeating. Their fear leads them to glorify God, the text says. You know, we sometimes think about the, the, the 
one of those Ten Commandments, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. That it, we, we sometimes think, you know, that just means I can't cuss with God's name. But to take the Lord's name in vain is to treat the Lord as if he's inconsequential, as if he's unimportant. If you were here when we were walking through Malachi, we learned that the name of the Lord is more than just what he's called. It's more than just how you say his name. His name represents his person. His name is who he is and what he's like and what he's about. So to take his name lightly is to take him lightly. So it has so much more to do than just our words, since it indicated his whole person. To take the name of the Lord lightly was to take him lightly, to regard him as no big deal. And here what we have is fear leading to praise. This fear that's associated with them seeing God act, you might say the fear of the Lord has them taking God seriously because of what they have just seen. One thing that we try to remind ourselves often around here at Southern Hills is that there is we ought to fear the Lord. Not be, if you're in Christ, it's not a terrifying what's going to happen to me. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, but there's an appropriate fear of the Lord. There's a tendency to want to think of God as just our kind of fun uncle in the sky. He jokes around with us and and doesn't really care that much about our sin, but we need to be reminded weekly that He is holy, that He is creator of everyone and everything, that He is perfectly righteous, that He is all-knowing and all-powerful, and here He displays His authority over life and death. So the crowd, in some sense, they're rightfully overwhelmed that, that they recognize that we are somehow in, in a manifestation of God's power, and we ought to be properly afraid and it leads them then not to take the lord's name in vain not to treat him lightly but to glorify him to praise him and they do it by affirming two things about jesus first they say a great prophet has arisen among us you see you see the crowd they they are recognizing these clear parallels between what Jesus just did and what some of the great prophets like Elijah and Elisha have done in their ministry. You know, when Jeff was preaching to, through First and Second Kings in Bible Hour, he compared and comp contrasted some of the differences between Elisha and Elijah and Jesus. And he actually went to this passage. And so we were in First Kings 17 in Bible Hour where Elijah performs a miracle he raises a widow's son. Sound familiar? He raises a, a widow's son. But one of the most important differences, and one of the things that Jeff pointed out when he walked through the passage, is that in 1 Kings 17, Elijah cries to the Lord, and he says, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. You could say the same thing about Elisha in 2 Kings 4. He raises the child of the Shunammite woman, and he too prays to the Lord. And he asks the Lord to do it. He asks the Lord to work. And then he waited to see if the Lord would do his work. 
And so what sets Jesus apart from Elijah and Elisha is he looked at the dead man and said, I say to you, arise. He doesn't appeal to another authority. He says, I am telling you to get up. And the dead man got up. So even though the crowd here, they're they're praising God, they're in some sense saying Jesus has great power like Elijah and Elisha, but I think their praise falls short. Jesus is not just a great prophet. In fact, Malachi prophesied that one like Elijah would come, and Jesus said the one like Elijah is John the Baptist. And who's greater than John the Baptist? Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the prophet of prophets, Yet he came to point to someone greater than himself. He came to point others to the Son of God. So if we wanted to get cute with our words, we might say it this way. The one who is greater than the one who is greater than Elijah has come. The one who is greater than the one who is greater than Elijah has come. Jesus isn't a great prophet. He's greater than the greatest prophet. And in Jesus, the prophet of the Lord, we see both his compassion and his authority. We don't have to pit these two against each other and choose sides. You see, when I say we ought to to fear God and we ought to obey God, I want to remind us that that Jesus' word, and if we want to span that out to the, the written word of God, because they're not in conflict, although people might try to make that argument, that Jesus' word is authoritative and it's good. It's authoritative and it's good. He commands us to repent because it's best for us if we repent. He commands us to obey because it's best for us to obey. His his will is life-giving. He has not come to hurt but to harm. He he, He has come to rescue So you can trust Him. You can trust His Word. You can trust His commands that they're good for you, even if they're hard to to, uh, fulfill. We ought to obey His voice because His voice is compassionate and authoritative. He is the prophet of prophets. The second praise they offer is found at the end of verse 16. God has visited His people. Now, this is a phrase that's commonly used in the Old Testament to refer to God acting on behalf of His people to rescue them. In 1 Samuel, when Hannah cries out to the Lord, she pours her soul out to the Lord, asking the Lord if He would remember her, i.e., will you act for me and grant me a child? 1 Samuel 2.21 says, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. He gave her three, oh, multiple sons, multiple daughters, not the least of which is Samuel. But the way the Bible describes God acting on her behalf, rescuing her from her distress, is that he visited her. The book of Ruth opens with a famine in the land and Naomi and her family leaving Israel to journey to Moab in search of food. And after a season of loss and terrible grief and tragedy, she hears a rumor 
she hears a rumor that over in the land of Israel, there is food. The Lord has visited his people. So for the Lord to visit his people is to act for their rescue. And what's sad about them proclaiming this is that there's, there's many in this crowd that only see a small portion of what they, what they need to see. They see this as an isolated incident of God using a prophet to deliver a widow from her distress. In Luke 19, Jesus will look out over Jerusalem and he will weep for them at the impending judgment because, he says, they did not know the time of their visitation. They didn't see it. They didn't recognize Christ when he had come and he had visited his people. Many saw a great miracle, but they missed the sign. They even spread the word about him in verse 17, but, but sadly many didn't realize that the visitation that they spoke of was found in Christ himself, not in the miracles that he came to perform. So then we ask, well, what, how has God acted? How has he visited his people to rescue them? Well, most clearly we see it in the incarnation of Christ, in his leaving heaven's glory to come to this earth. We see it in his death and his resurrection. Motivated by compassion, the eternal Son of God takes on flesh. He was born humbly to humble parents in a manger. He lives perfectly, even as he's growing, that we saw in Luke, in wisdom and stature, perfectly obeying the law in every way. He would teach and preach and perform miracles, pointing everyone to the uniqueness of his person and the authority of his message and his position as God in the flesh. And he would reveal and teach his goal and coming to purchase for himself a people for God's own possession through his sacrificial death on the cross. He alone. He alone is qualified as, as the God-man to bear the sins of the people. He alone could be the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. This is God's ultimate visitation, the incarnation, the perfect life, the death and resurrection of Christ. God has indeed visited His people. He has taken on flesh to rescue us from the penalty and the power of sin. And he has defeated not only the power of sin, but the sting of sin, death, in his resurrection. And one day, once and for all, Jesus will say to his people, do not weep. Do not weep. The sorrows and grief and sin and death of this life will be no more. It will be a distant memory for all those who have been united to Christ by faith in His work and repentance of sin. All mourning, like this funeral, all the mourning, all the grief will be turned to joy as we are with God forever. Listen to Revelation 21, a passage many of you are familiar with. Verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be, uh, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things has passed away. If we were to go on, it's, behold, all things are made new. There's coming a day where there is no more death, no more mourning, no more grief, no more funerals. Why? Because Jesus has acted on our behalf. J.C. Ryle said it this way, and we'll close with this. The Prince of Peace is stronger than the King of Terrors, and that though death, the last enemy, is mighty, he is not so mighty as the sinner's friend. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Prince of Peace who has come He has visited your people. He has accomplished the divine rescue that we were all in need of. Rescue from the penalty of sin and yes, the consequence of sin, eternal death. Father, may we rejoice that Jesus has dominion over life and death.